Yo, it's Julian on the brown note and a review of our Lord and Saviour, Lady Lana Del Rey's ninth album. Did you know that there's a tunnel under ocean boulevard named after the fact that there's this other world underneath uh, the normally seen boulevard in LA. There's this tunnel that's existed walled off to all and it's beautiful and it's got ceramic tiles on the ceilings as an extended metaphor it's her ninth album um i am a late comer to the church of lana um only sort of from the album nfr a few years back which blew my mind was one of the greatest artistic achievements this century not even joking i think it's probably the best collection of verses choruses and bridges melody wise on one album this century it is a master piece of an album i think anyone that has come across it well i think that people that rubbish it haven't listened to it to be honest because i was a complete doubter so she elevated herself to this regal position of the back of the uh, acclaim of that undoubted album of the year when it came out um and it reframed a lot about her it sort of took that whole ethos from video games her first single which painted this incredibly vivid portrait of this torch song hip-hop queen in some way um that caused so much trouble over that sort of era of her first very successful still most commercially successful born to die album where everyone accused of being fabricated and fake and as though people don't have stage names for some reason but also her unapologetic attitude and the fact that her persona would often push against uh more I guess left-leaning views of feminism with her sort of trad wife as it's become synonymous with her aesthetic um, that 1950s trad wife glamour that she projects so well and she seemed to sort of tumble through albums a little bit from Born to Die without doing anything that would solidify that whole aesthetic like nfr did so beautifully and now she's a really well respected cult figure with less sales but adoration the two albums that followed it uh when were, weren't bad at all um but obviously they had this 10 out of 10 album to live up to came to us over the country club was by far the most successful of the two for me i still wish that she had cold four tracks from Blue Bannisters and six tracks from Chemtrails and would have ended up with a, a another masterpiece. I think there was a bit too much going on there. Chemtrails was a much more sculpted album. It was much more cohesive. It told a story as it went along, whereas Blue Bannisters, to me, I just didn't really like. It felt, way, it felt like an endless stream of demo outtakes all in the same pocket and not much stood out um neither it wasn't terrible but um this album is something that 
really does, <laughs> thanks for that, really does um, lift back into comparisons with NFR very, very well. It, st it stands up as probably the joint best Lana Del, Del Rey album, her ninth album. Um, but she's really come into her own and she feels like she's grown from NFR to this point to deliver her most self-aware, mature and uncompromising vision of herself as well. Um, and it, I think people outside of the cult um, get a bit mocking about this level of serious critical appreciation of her music. But have a look at the needle drop guy. Just, oh God. Have a look at the needle drop guy. He just gave this album an incredibly in-depth review. He also is someone that mocked her for a lot of her career. But undeniably, she has come into her own as this highly individualistic and deeply artistic songwriter and producer of long-form projects. Um, so the opening track, The Grants, sets the stall um, for a, what's a very intimate and personal album. I guess the NFR album was a big album. Big gestures, big moments, big songs. This is a much more intimate are much more focused on herself and her environment immediately around her rather than trying to project this um, persona onto a skyscraper like NFR did very, very effectively. Uh, a lot of this is um, very unadorned and, and I think the, the, the fact that the ballads here are so unadorned often is a really confident step, confident in songwriting, confident, particularly in the lyrics as well. Um, I think the album has some of the best framing of her voice as well. Uh, it doesn't rely on the, like the, the NFR had huge production behind a lot of the tracks. I, do, I think this one relies on them um, less on filling out the soundstage with instrumentation do you know about heaven is pretty much the opening line. Um, it, it, I don't know if it was the opening line, but it did remind me a little bit. The uh, wistful tone of the Grants, the opening track, her surname is Grant in real life, uh, reminded me of the opening of Channel Orange, a mortal track by Frank Ocean, um, thinking about you, you know, think about forever. Um, it really did remind me because it's got this wistful... My, my sister's first <laughs> my first born child I misheard as first born child for some reason but my sister's first born child as well as that Frank Ocean comparison there's also the Sufjan Stevens track um, from Carrie and Lowell about where he talks about his brothers about the you know the the horror of his mother in the past but the joy of his brother's first born child um, which I really thought was uh, quite moving um, the uh, second song um, do you know there's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard the title track um, is a good example of one thing the album has kept over from NFR which is the ballads are often pretty enough and, and, and nice but she doesn't forget to have a hook and that um, when's it going to be my turn and it drops into the um, 
the chorus which just elevates a song because it's such a sticky hook and some of these ballads have really nice hooks on them uh, track three is a, a visionette which is called sweet and it, it, it sort of leans into the um, this is a really long album so it's gonna be a really long review it's the longest album and NFR was I think it's 77 minutes and given that there aren't many really long tracks it's it's a long one sweet is um it's it's her leaning into that trad wife view um it's almost got a country vibe to it i think a little bit it feels a bit country um a a and w was one of the pre-release tracks which drew a lot of attention to the album and jack antonoff um comes back on board one of the main people involved probably the main co-conspirator for nfr from Bleachers, uh, he's back here, but not on every track. Like I think he was on um, NFR, but Sweet is uh, A and W is a I think the longest track over seven minutes, and it's a two-part one with a very still um, opening sort of uh, few minutes before dropping into this vaguely hip hop. And in her earlier career, she did have songs that sort of got into this hip-hop beat zone um, and that doesn't happen very often here nothing here is really uh, try hard it's really confident in the way that she doesn't try and force too much of anything at any one point she will let something happen for a few minutes and then disappear and not actually um, it's, it's not as reliant on big moments like NFR was really reliant on you know this bridge is stunning this chorus is amazing here she sort of settles back into each song and lets it it feels like it percolated for a really long time whereas blue banisters to me felt like a lot of you know picking up a song from here and there and that it all it all blurred into um lack of the sum of its parts everything here feels like it's stitched together with such elegance um it's her most elegant record um the uh, interludes there's a couple of interludes and they come quite early in the album you would expect them to appear a lot later which is um i think another sign of confidence it also almost embellishes the albums as having segments and those first four tracks you know there'd be a brilliant ep if it had come out as an ep but she drops into the um judah smith interlude and he is an evangelical preacher from a mega church I don't want to. I don't want to think about Our Lady and Grace Lana Del Rey being religious, um, but there are a couple of interesting points about this. It goes on a little bit too long, but I thought it was. I thought there were some interesting elements. It's a. It's an evangelical preacher that someone like Justin Bieber goes to, who is also, I believe, under investigation for mandatory tithing. So a lot of these evangelical churches say that you've got to provide us with um 10 or 20 percent of your salary and they're worth millions um so he's he's like a celebrity preacher and he goes on this thing about lust which is very long as well but there are some interesting elements i thought it earned its place because at the end he talks about how my preaching is not about you it's about me which is obviously lana talking about herself but the other elements that I found interesting here were 
the distance away his voice is and the fact that there is like this this giggling or laughter which i can't quite work out if it's sincere laughter but it's almost like the um like in there's a swans record where they have this laughter which sounds like a you know a greek chorus or the chorus of the gods where the gods are mocking um, I don't think it's supposed to be mocking, but the sound distance, because the guy sounds like he's miles away and the, the laughter's very intimate and close. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Um, Candy Necklace yeah. <coughs> has, a, has a really strong um, melody. Uh, I think it's one that will get sing singled out f probably you know, in streams as having one of the strongest melodies. The only thing I would say is the it's the first time on the album at track six where i felt like her voice was following the melody i felt like it was all written on a piano and her voice was following it rather than the other ones which felt really naturalistic like the music was following her lyrics and voice um which happens on another song i think a bit later and the <laughs> vocals like i've come to love her terrible when she, a lot of the um lyrics on the on this album are great and very individualistic and the payoff for that is you you get lyrics on this one which um rhymes rockefeller with my umbrella and um young and restless with something like reckless uh, which is a little bit funny and cheesy um but it's a great song um, and it's got the, like the, if you strip her vocals away, the, the piano chords and that on it really remind me of Radiohead and Moonshape Paul. Something like really quite mournful about them. Uh, John Baptiste, a very famous musician, um, he appears on a John Baptiste interlude. It's interesting, there's two interludes near back to back where he's playing um, Lionel Del Rey's personal piano. It's got a vibe that reminds me of Primal Scream's Screamadelica album and the track Come Together, which has this gospel overtures to an audience. And I thought that um, really reminded me of that track. Then we come into... Um, and I, I think that like the, the turns on the album are quite unexpected. You don't quite know where you're going to go with the next track. I think the most the most consistent run is the really still ballads that follow, which seem to be quite near the heart of the album, such as um, Kintsugi, uh, which is another Antonov song, um, which is very still, and again with um, uh, Fingertips, which is, I think, the, the track on the album which would have slotted into NFR without anyone realising. Uh, and it rears up a bit at the end. Most of these tracks are really unadorned. And I mentioned there's a confidence in how unadorned they are. They don't rely on a lot of instrumentation to get them over the line. Uh, Paris, Texas is a pretty outstandingly stunning track. Um, very lost and lonely. When you know, you know it's time to go. Um, great chorus, really hooky uh, and Paris, Texas, the movie um, is from, like, I think, 1984. It's about alienation. And Harry Dean Stanton's character in it is, you know, is a character that's lost and has been wandering the desert of America, not speaking for years. He's lost his wife. He's lost his kid. 
um, and he gets his kid back and takes her across America and drops him off with his estranged wife without ever meeting her <coughs> in this incredibly heartbreakingly sad scene where he just sits behind mirrored glass and just looks at her and leaves the son there for the wife to find and disappears into the ether and you've got to go uh, from that song which is named Paris Texas so I have to assume that there is some comparison there a really strong run of tracks um, it feels after that Paris Texas track that um, it starts waking up and be and becoming less of this sort of dream state album and more into focus and being awake um, with um, Grandfather Please Stand on the Shoulders of My Father While Deep Sea Fishing is a really lovely lyric. Uh, back to the opening track about her family. It's got this sort of fever dream feel of it. Again, it could fit on NFR, which isn't always the case on this album. Uh, it's a really strong run. Uh, Let the Light In again. It's got Father John Misty, who I'm not a massive fan of, to be honest. Um, acoustic strumming as well. And a really well-constructed hook on that one. And I think where the controversy on this album will happen is um, Margaret, the track featuring Jack Antonoff's band, Bleachers, um, is such a stunning it, track. It feels so um, cathartic and cumulative and has an amazing hook. And, this, and it rises up to this cathartic sing-along end the, it could have been the end of the album and I think all of the debate about the greatness of this album is whether the next few tracks should happen or whether the album would have been stronger without them and I'm as yet undefined on this moment it could have ended there, it would have been a long album and it would have been a stunning way to end the album as well it doesn't help that Fishtail is probably the weakest track um, which follows it it's slighter, but we get what the justification for the last three tracks to me is that they introduce a more beat-based album after the you know, wasteland of these ballads. It, it becomes more beat-based and more snapping into focus. And I, did, I have enjoyed that change of focus and style. Um, it really did. I, it did work for me. I'm still in my head. Would I rather these three tracks were released as a satellite EP? Or do I treat them as a coda and a satellite EP? Do I end the album, which I think I do end the album, particularly in my head with Margaret, and treat these as deluxe tracks a little bit? Um, Fishtail isn't, is, is probably, I think, the weakest track. Peppers is a lot stronger. I really did like that one. It's got an old school Lana. Uh, the one really strong justification for these final tracks is that they delve deep into Lana's past when she was doing her faux hip-hop era, which um, I actually kind of liked. There's, she's an artist that is known for self-mythologizing, but here she's much more open and honest, and, and her suddenly dipping back into her own past is not something that is apart sonically with the rest of the album. So I thought Peppers was actually really, really good. Um, it's got this really stalking sort of bass going on in it and i really liked it and i i, I loved the last track taco truck vb so i thought the um <laughs> with this really silly lyrics taco truck was a great track on its own uh and could have been a track on its own 
but it it it's it drops its shoulder at the halfway into um, Venice Beach, which is uh, the nine minute track, which changed a lot of opinions on Lana Del Rey for, I mean, I hadn't heard a single track from NFR when it came out. And after I got to through two brilliant opening tracks and then the nine minute Venice Beach and got to the end of it, I was like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't realize that it was possible that it was gonna be this great. Here we get a reimagining of NFR in almost a UK drill style and I think it is a triumphant victory lap at the end of the album I could have easily have loved this album as much without these three tracks but I really have enjoyed coming back to this victory lap of pulling you into the um, various little um, hooks from Venice Bitch being played over this it's almost like the Fuji's ready or not it's got this really mournful UK drill vibe to it and it really does function as a victory lap for her so I think one of the reasons I'm rating this album so highly is it's given me so much to think about normally I can rate most albums after I try not to go under three plays but this one I probably listened to probably seven or eight times and it's 77 minutes or something and it's still solidifying and i think it is you know it's a trite analogy but if you were playing a video game this is one that you would play for 100 hours there's so much interest in in letting it settle and wondering how you'll feel about each part of it that it's elevated it for me it's a really grand discussion piece album uh and it's it's so confident and brave in its choices that it it doesn't need the bombast of NFR at all. It will settle down into incredibly plaintive ballads that rely on songwriting and um, singing and lyrics to get through. Uh, it's always fascinating and she sounds more almost awake and aware of who she is on this album than on NFR. NFR seemed more like a, it's a, NFR's a better album. I think NFR is a 10 out of 10 for me, but it sounded like she was playing the character a lot more. Here it sounds like she's giving her thoughts. There's, there aren't many characters on this album, which is very unusual for her. She seems to be, it's, it's got this fever dream stream of consciousness with the lyrics, which occasionally clunky, but actually often really interesting. And there's a lot of them. So I think this is a stunning album, and for Lana Del Rey's Did You Know There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard for the first time since last year with Black Country New Road and Moto Mami, which were my two albums of the year, I'm going to give Lana Del Rey's Did You Know There's a Tunnel Under Ocean Boulevard a 9.5 out of 10.